0: I worked for three years for free because I want to create winners. The culture tends to set in itself. It's free. It's fun, but it's discipline at the same time. We breed competition. You're not trying to change your BP to your entire team. You're trying to change your BP to the dudes that are struggling. Realized at the time, every time I freak out, it just becomes white noise. But if you don't have good assistants and you don't let them work, you're not going to be very good. Work, I mean, honestly, man, it's a lot of work. To live for you know that next twenty seconds in this thing, thinking I can do it on my own. You can't. You need others by becoming a better human being. I think you're allowed to be a better baseball coach.
1: Fellas, fellas, fellas! Welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host Joey
2: Cunha. And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at The Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we are here to be a bridge from where you are to where you're going. To Joey, we've been talking a lot about Lipkey the last couple weeks. Enough of the what, how can I use this in my practice?
1: Great question there, Bo. I mean, uh, we gotta you know, need to know how to apply it to our everyday practice if we want it to work and get us better. So you know what we do at uh brighton in uh utah is basically you know even even when we're playing catch um all of our infielders um even even our outfielders our our catchers it just depends on on which guys we have a whole bunch of them we, we use about five or six that we have at practice every single day and uh they go through we do individuals um before we get into any of our uh, you know defensive work for the day and so they go through their individual drills for their position and all of them have it on their hand the entire time. If we're doing short hops, if we're doing um, just getting through the ball, if we're, you know, we're working on footwork or anything to do with infield, if we're catching balls from the catcher, if we're receiving balls as they're throwing down, all these situations, you know, we, we constantly have it on our hand the entire time.
2: Okay. And how will this product improve the efficiency of not only my players, but also my time and my money investment?
1: I think the biggest thing is, I kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago is as a coach, there's just too many things going on and you know you can't you can't just be focused on every single rep. And so it just guarantees that they're constantly in the right position. And instead of trying to beat out these bad habits that we constantly have by doing reps the wrong way or um, just going through the motions, this always forces us in a good position. And it just really has saved me a lot of time of having to go back and break all these bad habits because it's a tool that automatically does it for me.
2: Fellas, the discount code for the LipKey Pro has changed. Um, you can now use code THEFARM18, all caps, for 10% off at com.
1: On this episode, we bring you a seasoned coach with 18 years of experience, 14 of which were at the collegiate level and seven years as a head coach. He had stops as an assistant at Bethany College and Clarendon Junior College. He spent five years as a head coach at Sterling, reaching the national tournament every year with 40-plus wins each season. He also reached the World Series twice, Dink's first season at Southeastern University, he set the school's record for wins and reached the national tournament. This led to the school's receiving its highest ranking in school history. The fire started this year ranked fourth in the country and continue to be undefeated to this point in the season. This last weekend, Dinkel joined the 300-win club as a head coach.
2: Pull up a seat, grab your notepad. Here's Coach Dinkel.
1: Fellas, just want to welcome you back to the farm system. Today, we're sitting down with Adrian Dinkle, head coach of Southeastern University.
2: Dink, we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come and chat with some baseball with us. Joey and I also wanted to congratulate you on your 300th win this weekend, as well as your 19-0 start. Really got the troops rolling, don't you?
0: Yeah, man, been a good season so far. Appreciate you guys having me on.
2: Dink, anybody that's been in coaching knows it's an extreme grind, especially in the er- in the early years. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey to get to where you are today?
0: Yeah, I mean, after uh, college, you know, I finished my senior year at Bethany College in Kansas and uh, I was fortunate enough and blessed enough by uh, my then head coach, Matt Trammelt, you know, he asked me to stay on, thought I'd be pretty good in it. I think I was set up on heading back to, you know, Salt Lake City where I'm from. I planned on going back, being a high school baseball coach, and he did a pretty good job convincing me to stay on for free and to uh, work with the pitching staff. And, you know, it was, you know, that was a tough grind because it was guys that you know I played with and, uh, hung out with away from the field. I had to learn to separate that, but, you know, I was happy that he did it, and I did that for a couple years. It's free. I don't think people realize that as you're doing some of the things that you're doing. Um, I worked for three years for free. I uh, didn't do anything. I substitute taught during the day, got up in the morning, cut the grass, went and taught, come back, did it again, and then recruited at night, and then, so I worked with that guy for four years at Bethany. I was uh, fortunate enough after that two years, I took off when and took a junior college job at Clarendon Junior College in Texas. I was there for for two, then after that, you know, had the opportunity to move up to uh, be the head coach at a Sterling College in uh, Kansas, where I coached you guys. Uh, I was there for, you know, five years as the head coach, and then after those five, you know, I've been down here at Southeastern for the last two, so, you know, I've been traveling all over the place. Uh, it's been a while, ride, but it's been fun.
1: So, Dink, um, you know, like you said in the beginning, it is quite a grind. So, you know, you really have to have a love or a passion for it. So, you know, why do you why do you coach? Why do you choose? Um, you know, if, if you want to make money, this definitely isn't the, the, the place for you. So what is – well, why do you coach? You know, what, what, what is it for you?
0: I mean, obviously, you love it. I mean, we love the game. I love being around the game. And there's nothing else I'd rather do. But the main reason we coach, them, to be honest with you, man, is I want to create winners. And when I say winners, um, I want to recruit winners in everything we do from, you know, off the field in the classroom, to the faith side, to on the field, to just everything that they do in life. And I I get more enjoyment out of teaching people how to win at everything in every phase of their day, And, and that brings enjoyment to me. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's finding a way to create winners, and I couldn't see you doing that anywhere else. I mean, our platform as a coach is so big that, you know, you have the opportunity to reach so many people, and if you have an opportunity to teach them how to win at everything, I mean, it's extremely rewarding.
2: Dink, like we mentioned, you just got your 300th win off to the 19-0 and start. Um, I was there with you in the fall as a graduate assistant. Uh, you guys are loaded with talent. Where does this team rank amongst the others you've had in the past?
0: Talent-wise, it's the most talented team I've ever had uh, from top to bottom. I mean, pitching staff, you know, front-end talented, you know, one through ten is, you know, a different type of arm, you know. 10 through 14 is also pretty good. You know, talent-wise, it's there. You know, at this point, we're still just trying to figure out what kind of team we had. Your guys' group in 16 was was a really good team. Um, but as far as this group goes, it's definitely the most talented, What remains to be seen with this group. Are we we becoming a team, or are we extremely talented not talented people at this point?
1: I want to dig a little bit more into that, too. I think a lot of people have this perception that if you have talent, that that means that that's going to be the best team. Can you dive more into what you mean by having a really good team or just having a team full of talent?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you have a team, you got guys that jump on each other's backs and support one another. Uh, they pull for one another, whether it's the 15th guy that finds a way to grab a chart and help the guys that are at the plate saying, hey, these are tendencies as, as we run through our progressions in the dugout. You know, the 15th guy is helping one, one, you know, one through nine, you know, to understand his at-bats, understand his approach to narrow the focus a little bit. And those guys are, are supporting one another and, and fighting with each other. Where on the other hand, if you just have a bunch of talented guys, they're all worried about scratching and clawing, stepping all over each other and worried about themselves instead of the ultimate goal at the end of the day is you know winning games um, and staying with one another. So I think at that point, I mean, if you put the talent and the team together and those guys that want to do that, then obviously you're going to have something special. So, I mean, you're always, as a coach, you want the talent, but at the same time when you're digging through things, you want to find guys that understand roles and buy into roles. And if you can, you can get that team, then you know you're going to have a fun year. So
1: what would you say has been the key to your continued
0: success over the years? I'm going to keep it simple, man. I think at the end of the day, it's just get really good players. I think we overhype it at the same time. I mean, if you want to be successful in this game, obviously you have to coach. you got to have a plan, um, and you and you got to you know use that plan. But at the same time, you better have really, really good players. If I don't have really good players with a plan, we may win some games, win, in a minute, win as much as we want. So it all starts with recruiting. Go out and find really good players that make you look smart.
2: Touching on that talent, um, the teams I've been around with you, they generally seem to have kind of a similar culture or mentality. Um, why don't you go ahead and elaborate on that culture and mentality that you try to instill in your successful teams?
0: Well, I mean, it goes back to we want a bunch of guys that want to get after it and want to compete. And at the end of the day, they want to become winners in all phases. I mean, we're going to keep circling around to that. It- We're trying to create winners i think we got guys in the culture that we have that are fun loving that's competitive i think we we entrust that and breed that into our program and our guys as we go that we're we're focused on and winning at everything and along the way guys start to buy in and they compete and they get after it but you know the the culture is set when winning i think winning solves everything and we've been very successful over time um, to win a lot of games and so the culture tends up set in itself it's free it's fun but it's discipline at the same time and i think that's what we're trying to set forward So guys have a little bit of freedom and they enjoy playing the game because, you know, there's a lot of kids that we get come from different backgrounds and different home lives and different situations that we got to find a way to embed them all. And at the end of the day, everybody has one common thing that they love, and that's winning.
2: Absolutely. Um, Obviously, you're not going to always win. Why don't you touch on some of those tougher seasons, how you really work to instill that same culture?
0: You just keep pushing for it. I mean, you just got to keep reminding guys, you know, 2014 I want to say we you know we had a rough year with some guys that struggled with the culture and didn't really buy in and you know I think we ended up going 40 and 20 was you know one of the worst years I've ever had as a coach and Hmm. you know I think we got to that point was you know we we just kept pushing and grinding And, and let's just be fair at the end of the day if we got guys in those situations or guys even if you're winning 50 games that really don't buy into the culture then we're, we're going to move a different direction and find guys that just want to buy in. Even if they're you know less talented, we'll, we'll take those less talented guys that want to find it. So I think that's the tough part of being a head coach. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta move forward from some of those really talented guys and find those guys that just want to compete and those guys that want to get after it.
1: I know, I know, obviously a lot of coaches, when they listen into podcasts like this, or they're constantly reading or in search of information, they think that they're going to come across this one nugget. That's going to absolutely you know change exactly how they do everything, but you know, there is things in practice in your guys' daily routines and your approaches that, you know, contributes to your players' development and your team's success. Could you kind of unpack all of that for us?
0: Yeah, I mean, as far as our practice style goes, I mean, it's something that I've picked up along the way, you know, running from, from high school to being with, you know, a couple programs as a player to coaching, you know, three other programs as well. I mean, our style, we try to be high-paced, on-time, kind of keep ourselves moving. And everything we kind of do, even through drills, and I think our guys buy into it, I'd say that you guys were probably two of the better ones that I've ever had with that is we, you guys, we breed competition uh, through our batting practices, the energy we move, and next thing you know, guys are challenging each other in, in just in our styles of BP. And I think that you guys understand, and other people don't, is we just don't sit on the field and just swing a bat to swing a bat. It's just not going to happen. If you want to do that, that's what the batting cages are for on your own time, but when you're with us uh, team practice, you know, we're going to put you in, in competition style batting practices, whether it's through our angle BP or, or you wear a fire BP or multiple BPs that we take. I think that we want our guys to get up there and be challenged. I think that there's too many times that our programs or coaches out there that just, hey, let's just throw BP, you know, take four rounds of five and get loose and cut it loose. We don't want to do that. I think that we want to focus on the little things like this internal hip rotation, getting our hands moving. Hanging our hands, finding different things, getting off our backside, you know, through our launch angles, whatever you may be, and each guy's different. Um, but we want to focus on that while we're on the field as much as possible. And along the way, we're looking at these guys saying, hey, compete with one another, see who can do better at this time. Um, we're not going to waste a lot of time in practice. I think you guys know that as well. We just don't, I don't want to waste time. I don't understand when you get out there and have these seven hour practices. We're going to get out there, get moving, get our jobs done, get off the field in three hours and move forward.
1: Do you think? A big part of that is we did have a whole bunch of different BP routines, but I think the key, um, and that me and you've talked about this before too, is coaching is when to know what type of batting practice you need to do. Like, let's say for instance, you know, our swings are getting long or you start noticing that, you know, we can't, we can't hit V low or that we can't hit off speed. I think, you know, what great coaches know how to do is is pick the right BP that that team needs to do to make them successful. You know, Could you uh, kind of elaborate on not just knowing what to do, but when to do it?
0: It's just you're watching, and it, let's just be fair. I think that you're not trying to change your BP to your entire team. You're trying to change your BP to the dudes that are struggling because obviously you're going to have three or four guys that went off the weekend before, and you're going to say, hey, let them do them thing, let them feel comfortable. But you need those other five to get after. And if they're getting beat by b hey, the other guy's got to melt in because that's what we're going to do. But we're going to stick the machine up there, and we're going to let it rip, and we're going to get those hands moving, and we're going to say, hey, can and get the barrel out front? Or if, hey, all of a sudden those swings are getting long, we're going to shove you in that zone BP, and you guys know what that's like. If all of a sudden you get long, your hands are going to ring, when all of a sudden you're getting that, you know, that dummy or that uh, that T on the outside. So I think it's just focusing on, hey, this guy's getting long. He's starting to you know, lose the backside a little bit. Let's jump to that drill. And so I think when we say that what style of BP is it, You're just going to look at those guys that are struggling and say, hey, we got to get that fixed because we need one through nine to get going. Hey, is one through nine always going to swing it? No. But the more guys we can get in the lineup to get clicking at the same time, obviously, the more wins you're going to get.
2: Deke, one thing that's pretty cool about a lot of those NAIA programs is that they're Christian based. I know that's a good fit with you um, being a man of God. And I know you've been strengthening that relationship over the years. How have you seen that experience mold and change your coaching strategy and philosophy?
0: Oh, heavens, man, that is, you know, as being a Christian, you know, from, from starting this thing when I was 23 to, you know, being a little older now, um, it's changed a lot. I think that the deeper I have dove into my, you know, my walk with Christ, you know, the calmer I've got, the more more open I've been, you know, just, you know, just by, by filling my faith and, and putting things on my heart through Christ. And I think that any time that we have the opportunity to, you know, praise or, or look at something that's bigger than ourselves, I think that allows you to be a better coach. I think there's a lot of times when I was young, the only thing I was worried about was was the wins and the losses. That's all I cared about. But once I started to strengthen my faith, I realized, hey, there's a lot more than these W's and L's. Don't get us all wrong. We want to win. But being able to have faith, love faith, love Jesus, spread that word with our guys to understand that that's what we're about. I mean, I think that – that just allows you to relax a little bit and become a better human being at the end of the day. And by becoming a better human being, I think you're allowed to be a better baseball coach.
1: Dink. Uh, what do you think too, when you look back and you, you think about those early days when you're early in, you know, your twenties, what are things that you look back and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that in that situation or I coached that way. What are things you look back and kind of laugh at yourself now?
0: Oh man, I was nuts, man. I I'd get upset. You know, when I was young, <laughs> I thought that's the way it was because the people I played for, I would, chuck buckets and kick things around you know i wanted things a certain way certain players i mean i cookie cut everything when i first started this thing i wanted everybody to swing the same way i wanted everybody's hand pass the same way i wanted the mental approach the same way for every guy and and when they didn't do it it was automatic hey i'm gonna snap i'm gonna freak out on you a little bit and i thought that's the way it was and as i got older you know something that kind of changed my life a little bit and as far as coaching goes was Ray Birmingham, you know, head coach in New Mexico, when I was talking to him one time, he says, hey, why don't you limit your freakouts to three to five a year? And ever since I started switching my freakouts down, and I don't freak <laughs> out like I used to, man, it just, now I'm calm. Uh, you know, I just realized at the time, every time I'd freak out, it just becomes white noise. And I think young coaches do that. They think, hey, screaming and yelling, you're going to catch everybody's attention. I think as I got older, I started to find out, hey, are these guys, and I individually started a process with my guys, Or is this guy process-driven? Is this guy results-driven? And once I started to figure out, I need to coach that guy because he's results-driven in a certain way. This guy is process-driven in a certain way. And it's my job at the end of the day. And if I can't figure that out, and as I got older, I started to realize, hey, man, like, I got to go home, and it's my job to find a different way to do that. And, and everybody was always they, they don't want to feel dumb. And at the same time, I started to realize, man, pick up the phone, call someone else. As long as I'm getting that guy better, I don't care how it got fixed, whether I call my friends, whether I called my colleagues and said, hey, man, I can't get this fixed, I started to grow. And next thing you know, my players started to grow. And I started getting better response. My, my demeanor calmed down a little bit, and I started to realize when I should discipline, how I should discipline. Do I discipline in front of people? Do I discipline in the office? And I started to feel like, the, hey, I did a better job that way. But I think early in my career it was just I wanted to attack the day at that point. If there was a mistake made right there in practice, hey, I would flip. And I would try to address it right then when well, I start to realize, hey, I need to go calm down, talk to the guy a little bit as I got older. And if there was an issue, I'd bring him office, man to man. Some people don't like to be embarrassed. Kids don't want to be embarrassed. So I figured out as I was getting older, hey, don't embarrass this kid. Let's bring him in. Obviously on game day, if they do something, I want to address it right then because let's just be real. Kids these days, forget fast. Um, so we want to address that way. But things at practice, hey, let's go address it. If it's a big situation, I pull him office. Hey, that wasn't the way I was before it was. I want this fixed, and I want it fixed now. Well, at that time when you're screaming, man, and that kid's too worried about running or making you upset, and all of a sudden you've lost that kid for the day. It doesn't do you any good. So I'd say that I've grown up as far as that goes throughout the years, just understanding, calm down, and I've got to tailor my coaching to what style of player I have individually. I may have to be a little bit more rough with Joey than I have to be with Bo. And as I grew older, I got that, you know, when I was 24 – Nah, everybody was getting yelled at, and that's all that mattered.
1: So I think me and Bo and you all understand, you know, uh, players that might be process or, you know, end result guys. But I I think some people might be confused with that. Can you give us an example of, you know, a a player that might be one way or another and how you choose to kind of go about that differently?
0: Well, I mean, you look at it this way on a pitching side. I mean, you're going to have the guy that's results driven. If you're down there trying to get him figured out, you know, getting off that backside, getting into a stiff frontside and locating a pitch, and he can't get there automatically, and you can't get him right there that way initially right that day, he's going to lose. He's lost already. You've lost all the power over him. He doesn't trust you that much anymore because he's results-driven, and he wants to see it that day. So it's your job before you go out there and start teaching something. You better have a plan. You better understand, how can I get him there? How can I find a way to get him there fast? Because by the end of that pan session or that game, he wants to see a result because he's results-driven. If he doesn't see the result with some spin rate on the breaking ball, he's going to back out. He's going to do what every other kid does these days. He's going to jump on Twitter and have 17 different pitching coaches. But if you could find a way to make sure that that dude has a result that day or the next day, He's going to buy into what you're doing, and he's going to jump on your train. That guy results are, You need to find a way, however it may be, whether I have to call you guys or call somebody else or figure it out myself. You know, ultimately, the goal is to figure it out myself. Get in there. Process-driven guys, for me, are guys that are the fun ones to coach. They understand that it's going to take some time. They understand that i got to fix one thing at a time to get to the ultimate goal. And Ultimately, what you're trying to coach your guys to is you're trying to coach all your guys to be process-driven. You're working in that direction for all, you know, 35 guys in your program, for sure. But at the same time, there are plenty of kids that walk in the program that are 100% results-driven. And that's on the offensive side. Guys are results-driven. They want hits. Um, And you just keep changing however you got to do, whatever you got to do. If that guy goes up there and all of a sudden he barrels a baseball up and it leaves the yard after you taught him something, I mean, he's going to look at you and say, hey, man, coach, that's all right. Good job. Let's keep going. They're going to keep coming to you. They're going to gravitate towards you because they've seen results off what you told them the process driven guy understands that he may hit a couple balls really bad as you made a swing change or, you know, something in the plane of the swing. He understands that this is going to take some time. Those are the fun guys, but at the same time, that's just not, that's not the land we live in. I mean, you got two different types of people and you better find a way to coach them both.
2: That's good stuff. Um, Dink, I think quality assistant coaches are, are pretty vital to a program's overall success and and they can really make your job easier. Um Obviously, you got a couple of good ones with Eric, Julian, and Andrews, the grad assistant. What characteristics do you look for in your assistants, and how do you delegate power and responsibility to them?
0: And that's changed, man. That's also changed over the year. I used to, you know, when I first got into this thing as a head coach, I did everything. I mean, I taught pitching, hitting, defense. I mean, I was everything. And as I've got a little bit more into this thing, I've I've allowed my hitting guy to be my hitting guy, obviously within my, you know, my philosophy and my plan, my pitching guy within my philosophy and my plan, but I let them work. Um, But if you don't have good assistants and you don't let them work, you're you're not going to be very good. I mean, you don't want, I don't want yes men. I want guys that are going to challenge me every day so we can grow together. We can get better together. Uh, At the same time, I mean, we're in the level of of winning games. Um, I got to find assistant coaches that you better be able to really teach something or you better be able to really recruit at the same time. And those characteristics, I'm going to find guys that players love to play for, that they can build a relationship with, that they can trust. And and the guys that I have here now are awesome with that. They they allow the guys in, they love on them, they move them forward, and the guys like playing for and and they want help. And I think at the end of the day, you can have the best X's and O's guys in the world on your coaching staff, but if he's not well-liked, you're not going to get anything out of it. And so I look for those guys when I coach those guys. I want guys that's fun to be around. I mean, I'm stuck with those guys seven days a week. I mean, those guys are with me every single day, Bo. You're with us every single day in the office. You understand that if you're in a room full of four or five different personalities that are fighting with each other all the time, that ain't going to be very fun. I think that when you go out and you hire somebody, it better be somebody that you know you can enjoy your day with. I think so many times there are hires that are made in this game off, hey, he's just one, he's just one, he's just one. Well, if he doesn't fit your personality, you're going to be in for a long year. Uh, you can make the adjustments however you want, whatever he, whether he lacks on you know in this section or he lacks in this category or whatever it is. You could pick up that slack with someone else, but you better make sure you find guys that players love to play for, players will run through a wall for it. If you find a staff that guys are willing to do that with, it, it's going to be a fun year. So,
1: Dink, you know, uh, you've coached at multiple different levels now. What do you think the, the role of the coach is at these different levels? Let's say, you know, high school, JUCO, or four-year coaches, do you think the role of what the coach is, um, you know, what his role is to the team, is? do you think it's different
2: at all?
0: I don't. I, and I understand the question there would be, hey, get them prepared for college, get them prepared a you know, junior college, get them prepared for the four-year. If you had a four-year, get them, get them prepared for a professional level. I don't think that's the case. I think your job as a head coach is to find a way to create good young men and create winners however it may be, and the rest is going to take care of itself. I think that your job as a junior college coach is to also sell, to sell your kids to move on. As a high school coach, to sell your kids to move on. But I think that's in every category. It's still your job is to sell your kids and to make your kids better and to develop your kids, whether that is away from the field, you know, on the classroom, on the field, away from it, whatever you got to do. I think the role still plays the same. And I think if you're coaching differently at every level, then That's up to you, but I think that it should all be a standard of, hey, we expect greatness in everything we do at every level, and it all falls into place from there.
2: So, Dink, obviously this year, and stretching back to your time at Sterling, you consistently have some of the best talent in the NEIA, if not the country. How do you go about not only targeting those big-name D1 guys or JUCO guys, um, but actually get them to come to your school?
0: Work. I mean, honestly, man, it's a lot of work. Uh, you know, you're on the phone a lot. You call, you make connections. You got to network. Um, once you network and, and you find those guys, people will call you. If you're successful, let's just be real, guys. After you you got on the road and you've made a million phone calls and you've networked a lot people like you and they want to be around you, they're going to call you about good players. And obviously, once you get those players on the phone, you better have something to sell. And as we're selling through recruiting, man, we're what I would call collecting coins, man, I'm listening to that kid talk as he's going. And believe, believe me, if he's transferring from, wherever it may be, you know UCLA or Florida or whatever it is, it's still a recruiting job. That kid wants to feel loved. And we say, when I talk about collecting coins, you're listening to what that kid has to say. You're listening to what he loves and what he wants to talk about. And once you hear them, you grab that and you start to elaborate on the things he loves. So what you have, if you're saying, hey, man, I want to love winning, hey, man, we won 50 games last year. And we're going to keep winning more, but we need guys like you. And at the end of the day, every kid wants to feel loved. Every kid wants to feel important. And that's your job, is to get off your butt, make a ton of phone calls, send texts when you don't want to send texts, make phone calls when you don't want to make phone calls. Uh, you got to do it. And I think at the end of the day, I think we've been very fortunate to get those players because we work just like everybody else does. Um, but at the same time, we, I think we just kind of get after it a little bit and guys just tend to you know gravitate towards us. And at the same time, once you build a winning program, kids want to be a part of that.
1: So, Dink, when you're talking about when you get these guys on the phone, too, I'm also interested, what are certain things when you're talking to certain guys that you've built experience that are, are red flags to you now? Um, you know, like, what are things of you know, certain directions or certain mindsets that these players have, if you, you hear certain things that it kind of puts a flag up in your head?
0: Well, the main things, obviously, man, I'm going to be, the, is, the, is the way you speak. I mean, if there's some some cuss words that are coming out immediately on the phone, we're out. I mean, that's just it. I don't want to hear it, um, I don't want to do it because... Obviously, if your first conversation with me, there's cuss words in there, we're going to move on. Another thing we ask is when I send out a a text or a phone call and I ask, you know, how would you guys do? And the first thing you said is, oh, okay, but I went three for four. Obviously, in that situation, there's a red flag for me. I'm saying, all right, man, this dude's about himself. The first thing he brought up was himself. And so we try to identify those things early, saying, is he going to fit in in our system by the way he talks? And I know that's not the standard for everybody, but after two phone calls, three phone calls, and the same thing with me recruiting, uh, a lot of the stuff happens through text nowadays. I, I still stick to it to this day. I want you on the phone. If I don't talk to you at least four times on the phone, or whatever it may be, or get in touch with you, at least have a couple hours conversations with you. I don't really want to be with you very long. I don't, I don't know if I want to be you because I don't know what kind of kid I'm bringing into my program. So I think at the same time, it's. What kind of kid are we getting? Does he does he understand the right thing? Is he team oriented? Does he want to graduate? And the other one thing that kind of you know will shy you away at, at times. Not every time will be you know saying, Coach, I really don't care about school. I just want to get drafted. You know, you can have one of those guys, but you can't have a team full of them because you understand that when they just come to get drafted, all they want to do is put up numbers for themselves. So they don't care about the wins and losses. They want to do it for guys that are in the crowd, for the scout that's in the crowd, and move forward. So those are some of the things that. We'll throw up red flags. Obviously, there's a time and a place where we say, hey, got to take the guy he's really not a bad kid, let's move forward. But most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, we're going to find guys that fit what I feel is best for our program.
1: So diving deeper into that, too, you you know, um, how much do you think a player's makeup um, affects their level of production?
0: A lot. I mean, I think if you got a hothead that's coming in there and flipping helmets and never holding himself accountable, he's obviously not going to do a very good job of, treating each bat individually because that dude is so upset about the about before and understanding that they are four different entities these are four different situations he's so hot-headed that he can't run through our pre-at-bat routine that we have set forward you know from our mental approach to to our timing to reading what kind of pick does he have what arm slide does he have what release point does he have you know reading our charts and if those guys are selfish and and hot-headed and so worried about failure It will change the way they act. You got to have guys that are willing and understand that. Hey, I just got to clear it. I'm gonna go home after this one, and I'm gonna take a shower, and I'm gonna move on, and I got a new day. Um, But I think we we all understand that you have those guys that are super negative guys. You know, they're drains. They suck the energy out of everybody. So you know, personality or whatever it is affects the way everybody plays.
2: So Dink, I know that we spent hours arguing about good players in the fall. Um, I know you have pretty high standards. Um, In your opinion and in in your experience as a coach, what what separates good from great players? And to build off that, what separates good from great coaches?
0: I mean, good from good players to great players is obviously the mental side of things and the work ethic. Um, The guys that are able to go put the extra work in and the guys that are able to clear the at-bat, clear the day, clear the pitch, and and just live for the next 20 seconds, whatever it may be, are oh, the ones that become really good. The guys that are able to make fast adjustments, make in-box adjustments, those become good to great. If you want to stay average, which is good in my book, if you just want to stay average, you just do the status quo. You get frustrated, you blame the umpire. Instead of communicating with the umpire, hey, is that as far as we go? And it's the same thing for coaches. It's for coaches that understand that they want to grow and they want to be challenged, that they want to read, that they want to listen to somebody else. At the same time, they just don't get on social media or pick up a thing and just follow along with what everybody else is saying. They have an idea and a plan, but they're not afraid to add to their plan. If they can add to their plan and make guys better, whatever something they've done, they're like, Hey man, I've been doing it wrong for 14 years. Why don't I make a change and and be willing to make those changes, but at the same time, not change everything you're doing. You need to have absolutes and you need to stick to your absolutes. I think that's what makes great coaches. I mean, if you want to talk about a great coach, you might need to call Augie Garrido or some of those guys right now. I'm an average coach that's just trying to make my way through it, but that, that's where my belief is, is right now. So,
1: you know, how do you go about developing your players to be better competitors than they actually are as players?
0: Put them in competition. Breed competition. That's just the bottom line is do everything to competition understand that there is there is a percussion or a repercussion for not doing the thing, for failure, you know, to compete, to not being able to compete, to understand talking to them. Hey man, we're gonna do this today. All we're asking you to do is compete. And it may take one day for somebody to get it figured out, it may take three months, but at the end of the day, you can't give up and you better put them in competition driven situations all the time. Whether it is let's compete in the classroom, let's compete with waking up the earliest, getting my, you know, my bed made eating the right things, competition in the field, hitting a ball as hard as we possibly can so that, you know, this side of the field, finding guys, and a good way to do it, I think, for us is you two were good for one another was we would try to find guys that mix with one another, and I think the more that you do it, it's your long toss partner. You want to find a guy that can compete a game of 21. Hey, the us see how many, let's be real, there's times when we just say, turn the music up and hit balls out of the yard. Anytime you can create competition, I think the guys start to understand, hey, I'd better compete or I'm just going to get run all over and I'm going to sit on the end of the bench. So I think that you have to focus on putting competitive situations all the time, whatever it may be, whether it's saying, hey, our pitching staff, what we use here in the pitching staff, like I said, we throw a ton. We don't listen to that whole throw a little bit, throw in there. We're going to do a ton of long toss. We're going to get an amount of ton. But we tell our guys, man, punch out everybody. And next thing you know, it becomes a strikeout situation. They want to compete. Who can have the quickest inning with the most punch outs and effective innings? All of a sudden it comes to, oh, I want to hit the most doubles. And everybody starts to compete with one another, but you have to maintain how you're doing it. But I think that if you could find a way to create the culture of competing at everything, focusing on the competition of everything, being great at everything, not settling for mediocrity, I think competition starts to starts to really flourish on the front. And when you have those leaders that are pushing those other ones, it, it's fun to be around and fun to watch.
2: Absolutely. So earlier you talked about um, making thousands of phone calls and, I think I've came to the conclusion that almost every coach I've networked with knows Adrian Dinkle. Um, I think this is a testament to not only your success, but your ability to network. How much of this career in coaching um, and really being successful at it is related to your ability to communicate, network, and connect?
0: 100% of it. If you can't communicate and you, and you can't talk to people, you can't recruit if you can't build relationships with these junior college coaches because you need them, you need their players. With these high school coaches, you need their players, these Division One coaches, you need their players. If you can't communicate and show them respect and get on the road and make friends, you're not going to be very successful. But at the end of the day, you need other people to be successful. No matter which way you want to spin this thing, thinking I can do it on my own, you can't. You need others. You need that phone call. And when all of a sudden, hey, you're looking for that dude shortstop that can change your team, you, need, you better have enough friends, you better have enough relationships to where your phone may ring from somebody saying, hey, I got a guy for you because they want to push him your way. And it, works, and it works our way, too. We, got, we send them guys. We'll call them about guys, and I think those relationships are huge. If you don't have those relationships in this thing, you're not going to be very successful. If you can't communicate, you're not going to be very good. It's just the same thing as coaching. You, know, you can't talk to your guys and communicate guys with what you want and what you expect it's going, to be, it's going to be a long year, and you're going to have a lot of guys you're going to lose early. And so I think at the same time, I mean, building relationships is, is priority number one. And at the same time, I think that we also got to understand that in this game, I think there's so many people, what I look at it, this is just my opinion. I coach, and I understand that once I'm done with this, there's just a the game. I better have some friends. And so these guys that I coach against, I know that they're my competitors, but at the same time, 30 years from now, some of these guys are going to be you know, my best friends, and I understand the importance of that. My best friend to this day is a guy that I met through this game. We're in each other's weddings, um, and we've met through it. We'll compete, and we recruit against one another, um, but at the same time, I mean, it's just finding a way to be friendly and enjoying being around it, and it, it should be a fraternity, and I think the ones that shy away from welcoming the others and sharing ideas or just being friends with them are the ones that you know, have a tough time you know, winning baseball games.
1: So, Dink, I think when uh, you recruit the talent that you have and, you, you know, you kind of, you know, victim of your own success, you create the problem of great players, you know, sitting the bench. You know, how do you handle that? And how do you keep them engaged throughout in the season when this guy that transferred to you was all league or he was all this or all that or all American and now he's sitting? How do you how do you keep them engaged?
0: Different ways. I mean, whether it's just find that role of, hey, jump on this and help the other guy, finding a way to get him to pinch hit at bat. Um, Treat their practice like it's a game. Uh, Treat their BP like it's a game. Focus on continually getting them better. Don't give up on them because they're not in the starting lineup. Hey, there's times in there where kids will sit on the end of the bench, and we have it. Um, Don't get me wrong. We'll have kids that will sit over there, but it's constantly reminding them that, hey, your opportunity is going to come. Your opportunity is going to come, and you have to get them to understand that it is going to happen. Um, I think you guys know that the lineup at the beginning of the year is never going to be the same at the end, and so – it's finding a way to let them know that you love them, that you want them to be good, because you do want every single one of them to be good. And sure, when you have the three-hole from a, you know, a junior college coming in that's been the best player his entire life, comes in and he's got 10 at-bats through you know, 40 games, it's tough. They're staring at you going, hey. But as long as you show them that you love them, you respect them, they're still going to work hard for you. Um, and we've, we have it this year. Um, but our guys have done a great job understanding that at the end of the day, it's all about what the team does, and they're a part of that team, and they're going to get their opportunities. And through 19 games this year, we make sure that, hey, I'm going to jump and put this guy in and that bat in a clutch situation because we need, to need, we need him to know that we need him at some point because there's going to be an injury. See, this guy's going to slump. And so it's, it's focusing on them, honestly, probably much more than you do your starters. And, you know, I, it's easy to just say, hey, these are my nine and move on. I still want to focus on our. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 guys to make sure that they're ready when their number's called.
1: And then, uh, you know, another thing too is, you know, I've experienced, me and Bo both experienced like your coaching style and more, you know, obviously more of recent, not in your early years. But um, we see that, you know, you really let your talent play. You know, you don't dive deep into X's and O's and get all complicated or, you know, for things like that. So, you know, for example, when I know when I remember when I was struggling at one point when I was playing for you, uh, you told me to get in the box and just be an athlete. Can you elaborate on, you know, that and your philosophy and kind of into those things?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, and, you know, that within the last five to six years, I think that we've all, we've run into it now. We've got so many, you know, Twitter gurus or so many videos out there with, which, which is some great stuff, but these kids are just seeing a two minute clip and saying, Hey, that's what I got to do. And instead of understanding the process. And the guy that's teaching it, you know, just because Josh Donaldson's doing it doesn't mean that that's the style of hitter you are. The launch angle is great, but everybody has a different launch angle. And I think that what we got at the same point is all that stuff is great. All that stuff will make you better. But at the same time, it all comes down to the thing. Sometimes it's time to shut up, get in the box, be athletic, and just compete. I think when we overthink things at times, I mean, there's a time that we fell. We're trying to do so many other things that just says, hey, man, Joey, swing doesn't feel good right now. Man, get in the box and just go be athletic because – We all were good in high school once we get to this college level, and that's when you thought you were really good, and you just let your athletic ability play, and then all of a sudden you got to college, and people started to get a little bit better than you. Now you started to get coached, and I've said this, and I've told you guys this before. Coaches make people worse. I'm a big believer in that. I think that overcoaching makes people worse. So for me, it is the same time, hey, let's get in the box and be an athlete, man. Sometimes you just got to forget about all the other things on, you know, Hang in my hand, internal hip rotation. Sometimes it just turns around to say, let's go be athletic again, man. Have fun. Go swing a bat and let your athletic ability take back over and the confidence will start to breathe positivity.
2: Yeah, from my experience, I think that was some of the best advice I had playing for you. Um, And I think that really resonates with a lot of players. You've kind of instilling that confidence that you know what you're doing. Just get in there and compete. Really is a lot of great stuff, Dink. If, If any of our listeners, coaches, players, parents, whoever it may be, want to reach out, reach out to you with questions, comments, information, whatever it is, how can they get in contact with you?
0: Uh, you can reach me in my email at, uh, at seu.edu, so it's a dinkle A-D-I-N-K-E-L at seu.edu, or, you know, my Twitter handle, which is Adrian dinkle. Um You can reach me on those things, obviously, if you send me out an email. Um you need anything, I'll we'll try to get back to you as fast as I possibly can, but those are the two best ways to reach me.
1: Well, hey, Dink, we really appreciate you jumping on with us today, and we wish you luck you know, going into this next week. And, uh, you know, me and, me and Bo hope you go undefeated. So, <laughs> anyways, but, uh, no, thank you so much for jumping on with us.
0: Uh, I appreciate it, guys. If you need anything from me, let me know, and I hope this podcast continues to get bigger, and I wish you guys continued success.
1: Man, Dinkle killed it. This call takeaway is sponsored by Quality at Bats.
2: Don't forget to visit qualityatbats.com to further your mental approach to hitting. So, Joey. Coach Dinkle touched on a lot of great things. What was your biggest call takeaway?
1: I think the biggest thing that I think about when I think about uh, Dinkle is I think every coach wants that one thing. They want the one thing that's going to put their team over the edge. But I, I just think it's not that easy. I think I think when it comes back to a guy like Dinkle, it's it's the culture. It's the daily routines. It's the daily practices. It's the, it's the daily reinforcement of the same things over and over and over again and failing and learning and failing and learning. And I think everybody wants this quick fix, but Adrian's stinks out to me is just that it's, it's more of an everyday approach. It's an every practice approach. It's an every situation approach. It's not just one thing that fixes everything.
2: Absolutely. That's good stuff.
1: So, Bo, um, you know, what, what was your call takeaway?
2: For me, listening to Dinkle talk, and as well as playing for him and coaching with him, the biggest thing I take away is just competition, 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 and competing. Best way to get your players better and, and really push them to, go, to grow together they have to compete against each other uh, day in and day out. That was the biggest thing for me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's big. That's that's what he he preaches over and over again.
2: Fellas, if you don't already know, the farm system now has a fraternity tee. You guys have been with us since the beginning. Now we want you to look like it. Order now at the system.farm and receive free shipping on your order.
1: Guys, as always, you know, definitely share this episode on social media. Send this out to anybody you think this could add value to. Dingle is a seasoned head coach and you know, he has a lot of reach. Um, he says a lot of great things. He's a great guy talking about practice schedule and and structure and things like that. It's a great guy to reach out to and get people in contact with. Just make sure to share us on social media um, and 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 just keep continue doing what you guys have already been doing. We've been spreading like wildfire, so we really appreciate you guys. Well, until next time, farm system out. <coughs>